Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode, I'm going to go through one of the typical objections that you get from uh, kind of online atheism, pop atheism, what some people are calling Mick atheism, uh, and it's $1 menu offerings uh, of mimetic objections. If you appreciate this content or any of the other content that you have, please consider becoming a sponsor uh, on Patreon or by following the Become a Sponsor link on the blog. If you can't afford it or you don't want to afford it or uh, for whatever reason you just don't want to financially support the show, that's fine. Um, But please, if you're enjoying the content, head on over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. That would be awesome. We really appreciate it. It would help uh, show have the Freethinker podcast show up higher in search results. So uh, with that kind of stuff out of the way, uh, let's dive right into this episode dealing with atheistic objections to faith and belief. Enjoy the show. I've presented some of this content as part of previous episodes before, but I wanted to pull it all out and discuss some of it on its own here. What we're going to be dealing with here are some of the typical kind of online atheist, internet infidel type of tropes and rhetoric. We've all heard things like faith is belief without evidence or that atheism is just a lack of belief and things like that. Well, I've done a full episode dealing with the problem of atheism being conceptually considered an autobiographical lack of belief or lack theism, which even many atheists themselves are tired of. And toward the end of this, I'll address the concept of faith and what it means biblically and why the normal mimetic objections to it fail. But to start, I'd like to address the typical rhetorical strategy employed by atheists, the conflation of faith with belief and of reasonableness or evidence with knowledge or certainty. We see this when we start getting into things like the Dawkins scale of atheism, where people start talking about being a Gnostic atheist or an agnostic atheist, where the difference is if someone claims to know that God doesn't exist or if they don't claim to know by lack of belief in the existence of God and so forth. Consider that Dawkins is not a trained philosopher and, to be honest, has shown himself to be quite a terrible at philosophy and actually doing good critical philosophical thought. It shouldn't be surprising then that his taxonomy of belief and lack of belief and knowledge, that is all the realms of epistemology, is all over the map and riddled with conceptual problems. Again, I've discussed the whole atheism as a lack of belief jargon in a prior episode, but here I'd like to point out the problem when these different memes are held in tandem. 
They create a kind of perfect storm of absurdity, what philosophers call a reductio ad absurdum, or a reduction to the absurd, where if we assume their claims are true, then what kind of falls out when we shake it all together is just absurd and contradictory. So let's look at some of these. First is that faith is a lack of evidence. Second, that belief is a kind of opinion, an unevidenced faith, such that an agnostic atheist still lacks belief. That is, they don't believe that God doesn't exist. Sorry, they don't believe that God doesn't exist. They just have uh, evidence or conclusions or empirical observations. If you talk to an atheist long enough and they say, I don't have a belief, I just, I just follow the evidence or I just, I just have conclusions or something along those lines. It's absurd, but that's the position. When you try and point out that they don't actually lack a belief in God in any substantive sense, because sure, they could use it in an autobiographical sense, but that's known to be so trivially true and would also make theism just as trivial true in the autobiographical sense in that I possess a belief in God, uh, that they'll start to fall back on these secondary tropes. They don't have negative beliefs or disbeliefs. They just observe the evidence or they draw reasonable conclusions or they're just looking at the empirical observations of science and so on. And so for them to have a belief is almost synonymous with having faith. That is, it's not evidenced. Remember, they need that conceptual difference in order to maintain their lack theism or agnostic atheism. They cannot have a negative belief or disbelief in God's existence, which is a belief, because then their whole taxonomy would fail and then the real problems would start. They might actually have a burden of proof for the claims that they make. So they need to have this lack of belief. Remember, babies and cats and rocks and full frontal lobotomy patients are atheists under this view. And I'm not being pedantic. Look up how many atheists make the argument that babies are atheists until Christian parents brainwash and indoctrinate them. I'm not presenting a character here. This is actually their, their arguments. These, these are memes they produce and defend to try and maintain the primary meme that atheism is a lack of belief. But think about what this means now. If one only has beliefs when there's no evidence, and if atheism is a lack of belief, then you have two absurdities that potentially follow. First, any Christian who thinks that they have evidence for their belief could rightly call themselves an atheist. Because if they have beliefs based on evidence, well, then they don't actually have beliefs, but they have observations, conclusions, knowledge that God exists. So they too would lack a belief in God in that sense. And if atheism just is the autobiographical lack of belief in God, which can describe babies and rocks and full frontal lobotomy patients, then surely it could also describe a Christian who lacks belief in God because they have beliefs based on evidence or observation, or they have a certain level of certainty that gets them to what they think is knowledge. Now, an atheist might come along and say that the Christian doesn't believe based on good evidence or real evidence or a broad enough range of evidence or whatever. But think how irrelevant that is to the definition. Nowhere does it say that the evidence must be good 
or recognized by those who disagree with you as good. That kind of truth by consent criteria is not a valid epistemic conceptual boundary here. In fact, it can't be. Think about what this would mean. It would mean that unless there is a broad, near-universal consent among your dissenters on the quality of your evidence, then your belief could and should be considered unevidenced. And it has to be by your dissenters, otherwise you'd simply be guilty of special pleading by saying that it's good evidence to all those of the people that agree with you. Think about this in the context of the debates between evolution and creationism, for example. Would the atheist allow the creationist to say that there is no good evidence because there are lots of scientists who do agree with them that it isn't good evidence? No. They would say it's not good evidence despite that and that the creationists would be engaging in special pleading and saying that the evidence is good because those on their side say that it's good. But for that to happen, the scalpel has to cut both ways. The creationist could just as easily say that the evolutionist is believing based on a lack of evidence or bad evidence because the evolution dissenters disagree with them. And if the evolutionist wants to try and say that their evidence is good evidence because the scientists who agree with them think it's good evidence, they would be committing the same special pleading fallacy that they would not allow from the creationist. So here, the question about the quality of the evidence is not at play, but rather if categorically someone is believing based on evidence that they find convincing or not. That is, are they basing their belief on what they find to be good evidence, regardless of how good their critics think that that evidence is? Or are they endorsing belief on the basis of no evidence or even the intentional rejection of evidence as a virtue? So again, with that said, the Christian who believes based on what they find compelling evidence would, not, would then not possess faith or belief, but rather would be operating on evidence and observation and as such would lack a belief. So these Christians would be atheists in the autobiographical sense, just like the agnostic atheist or lactheist would be. Okay, number two. The second reductio is in the form of a thought experiment. Imagine that Christianity is true for the sake of argument, and tonight at midnight, Jesus returns and human history of this age comes to an end. All humanity is empirically confronted with the undeniable reality of the creator God as judge or savior. This would mean that every single person in heaven into eternity will have firsthand observational knowledge, not belief, but knowledge in the existence of God and Christ. And so, you guessed it, they'll lack a belief in God, and as such, they'll be atheists. That means that heaven and the afterlife will be populated 100% by atheists because they know that God exists. Now, hopefully you can see some of the problems with that kind of rhetoric. For those familiar with Peter Bogosian's work, you'll no doubt be aware of his book, A Manual for Creating Atheists. In it, he gives some of these rather strange and idiosyncratic definitions, which are really redefinitions of the word faith as being something like belief without evidence or pretending to know what you don't know or believing something with more confidence than what the evidence warrants. And he claims that this kind of faith is the modus operandi for all religious believers. That 
that somehow we extol this kind of faith as a virtue and use it as our primary epistemology, that we use it as our method to gain knowledge and understanding. Now, for decades, Christian apologists have long been rejecting this as a false definition of the way that they and the Bible use the word faith. And they're right. That just is historically not how Christians have conceptualized or used the word faith or its cognates and synonyms in various languages. They argue that faith is, has, and always been a term referring not to belief formation, but to the volitional act of placing one's trust in a person or a thing and acting upon it. We can think of it this way. Faith is not an act of the intellect, but of the will. That is, it's not a cognitive faculty, it's a volitional one. Imagine that there's a chasm in front of you, and over this chasm are two bridges. One of them is a modern concrete and steel suspension bridge, while the other is a rickety 500-year-old rope bridge of questionable construction. Which bridge would you take? Well, we have all kinds of evidence that informs our decision, our history with bridges, both personally and collectively, the visual appearance of the construction and the sturdiness of the bridge, any knowledge that we may have about the architects of the bridges, if we have observed anyone else crossing the bridges with success, etc. That is all in the cognitive category. It's the information or the data of our intellect that must be processed and, put it, and, our, and our mind puts it together in a kind of risk-benefit analysis. Now, imagine that you don't have to cross the chasm. That might be information that will make you not choose either bridge. But imagine that there's a tsunami barreling up behind you and going across the chasm is your only hope for escape. You're compelled to act. And that act, that first step onto one of the bridges, is what the Bible means by faith. It's a volitional decision that's enacted based on your belief. It's not just the decision, but it's the will acting on that decision based on your belief by placing one's whole life behind that decision. You can't halfway step out onto the bridge. You either walk across it or you don't. Other examples have been used. You, you, you can't halfway get married. You either get married or you don't. You may be half-hearted about it, but you either sign the marriage license or you don't. You either board the airplane or you don't. You either get on the bus or you don't. These are acts of what the, what the Bible considers faith. The saying faith in action is not really helpful precisely because it's redundant. Faith is action. It's the action which flows from the will to act. Now, think back to the bridges. Maybe you grew up watching Indiana Jones and Pirates of the Caribbean and love rope bridges for some reason and have only ever seen examples of them holding people up, even if they hardly do it. And maybe the only modern bridges you've ever seen are bridges collapsing in earthquakes and succumbing to tidal waves in movies, and so you decide that the best, most reasonable thing to do is to take the rope bridge. You've acted in faith. You've evaluated the evidence and decided where to place your life and your trust. Think of our discussion above. The quality of the evidence one is operating from is not what makes something faith or not. The acting on the will in a way that places your whole life in trust in something is what makes it faith. That person who runs across the rope bridge, we would argue, has poor quality evidence. They should not have chosen the rope bridge if they had had all the best evidence. 
Or maybe they should have. Maybe they also knew that the modern bridge was rigged for destruction in one minute and that the tsunami was coming, the team abandoned the work without deactivating the explosive charges. So maybe as the person runs past us, they, they had evidence that made them choose the rope bridge that we didn't have. Maybe hundreds of the team working on the bridge all run past us and run to the rope bridge. Does the sheer numbers uh, of people going onto the rope bridge and the fact that no one is going onto the modern bridge count as some kind of evidence? I'm not trying to go into a full-blown evidentiary theory, but the point is that the quality of the evidence and the reasonableness of the conviction is not what makes something faith or not. The decision to step out onto the bridge is what makes it faith. But wait a second. You may say, no, my aunt and a bunch of her other Christians I know seem to eschew evidence and say things like, don't worry if you can't prove it. You just got to have faith. Isn't that, isn't that denying evidence and saying faith just is a virtue without evidence? Two thoughts. First, they're not trained philosophers. They're speaking colloquially and thus somewhat imprecisely. We shouldn't try to hold rigorous philosophical concepts based solely on colloquial uh, usage of terms. But second, and more importantly, notice that they're actually making two claims. One is about the evidence, and the other is an exhortation to act, specifically to have faith. Built into that colloquial use of the terms is the biblical concept we're getting at. Notice the major people who are called people of faith in the Bible are not simply acting in the abstract. Abraham believed on faith, but did that mean with no evidence? No. He had an experience of a specific calling of God, of a life lived walking with God and seeing answered prayer and direction. He believed that God was the creator of the cosmos and the giver of life. He met Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High, and so on. David had experience of protection from wild animals, the comfort from God, the care of God in keeping him from the wrath of Saul, the defeat of Goliath at the declaration of the name of the Lord, and so on. We could give countless examples. There are no biblical examples of absolute blind fideistic faith acting in completely hermetically sealed evidentiary experiential vacuums. Faith is always couched in our evidential and experiential tapestry that forms our cognitive lives. When we're exhorted to faith, it's typically in looking forward to the future outcomes based on current conditions. That is, we trust in Christ now because of what we believe he has done, and so we believe he will keep his promises in the future. We have evidence from experience, history, community, conversion, and a whole manifold of framework of other conditions that cause us to believe that God exists and is trustworthy, that he'll keep his promises and is powerful enough that his promise is actually a guarantee. We can go from cosmological arguments to fine-tuning arguments, specified complexity arguments, to my favorite transcendental arguments and moral arguments. We can think of examples in our own lives. After being married and living with my wife for 11 years now, I know her and I know her character. I know that she keeps her word and if she tells me she'll do something and that if she doesn't, there must be some sufficiently good reason. So imagine we agreed to meet for dinner after work at 7 p.m. and that she'll drop off the kids at my parents' house on the way. 
At 3 p.m., a co-worker asked me if I'd like to come to his son's birthday dinner after work that night. Do you, do you think I think, well, I have no direct empirical evidence of my wife showing up at 7 p.m. for dinner tonight, and I don't want to have that bad faith with no evidence uh, to, to follow around it. I don't, I, I don't need that mess. So believing that she'll show up because I have no direct evidence of that is unreasonable, and thus I can make other plans. No. Is it possible that I have sufficient evidence from past experiences in the trustworthiness of my wife to not make uh, other plans for myself? Yeah. When I act in faith, I commit myself to the fulfillment of the promise in the future, which I do not currently see in the dinner I hope to have with my wife. This kind of relational knowledge leading to a trusted faith and a whole life commitment is what is meant in Hebrews 11.1, 1, a verse often vilified by, by atheists, when it says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, future, and the conviction of things not yet seen. It's the assurance in my knowledge of my wife that she will show for dinner and the conviction, my personal conviction to act based on what I do not presently see and so I don't make other plans. With God, we Christians hope for the promised return of Christ, the fulfillment of his good promises. We have the assurance in what we believe about God as the covenant-keeping good God who delights in keeping his word to his people. And we have the conviction of that belief, even though we do not presently see or experience the fulfillment of that second coming yet, at least not completely. That's not a statement about why we believe in God or that he promises these things in the first place, which can range from things, like I said, evidence uh, from the resurrection, theistic arguments, evidence from cosmology and fine-tuning, or from abiogenesis and specified complexity and genetic information, from the creation of the cosmos itself to the experience of the church to personal religious experience to a changed life rooted in obedience to the scriptures and Christ and on and on. There's a whole matrix of evidences and reasons for why one person believes that God exists and places their trust in him. Faith is not the foundation for the matrix. It is the application of that evidentiary matrix to living the Christian life. Think of the ant that tells you to just have faith. Maybe you're going through something challenging in life. She's likely not saying that you should just have an abstract belief that God exists apart from evidence but rather that since the scriptures say that we cannot please God without faith, without belief in God, and that he rewards those who love him, that even though you may not be able to see why something bad is happening or what possible good God could have uh, to come from it, you ought to believe that God is trustworthy and thus live in faith, act faithfully and continue to trust and be obedient to God and to continue to trust that he'll keep his good promises in the future. Your aunt is wisely, even if colloquially, telling you to have assurance of the hope of God's good plan and that to have conviction to act in alignment with your expectation of that not yet seen or not yet realized fulfillment. Once again, the atheist may say that such reasons for belief and trust are not good reasons or evidence, but that is still besides the point. Again, it's not the quality of the evidence that determines if someone is acting in faith, but simply if they're placing their trust in God or not is what faith is. They could do that based on good evidence or bad evidence, good reason or 
bad reasons. Now, as an aside, let me also put a word in here for the so-called Pascal's wager. The wager is so often critiqued because people misunderstand it and they think it's an argument. They think it's one of the theistic proofs that God exists, right? What they think it's saying is, hey, if you don't have enough evidence that God exists, believe in him anyways, because hey, it might work out for you. Okay, that's not what the wager is. It's not an argument for the intellect. It's an appeal to the will. It's a marriage proposal in an arranged marriage. You may not know your future bride or what they look like yourself, but you've been told by others that she's exceedingly lovely inside and out and will be the best wife any man could ever hope for. It's, it's for the person on the fence of belief and action. It's not meant to convince the atheist to be a Christian. That's not the point of the wager. But it's meant for someone who's sitting on the fence, who's unsure of what to do or where to go or, or how to act. They're 50-50 if, if the Christian gospel is true. It tells that person to get off the fence, and even if they can't get their intellect to fully grasp it or to fully commit, they still can commit their lives themselves. They have a marriage proposal in front of them. They're told that, that, that it's the most beautiful, wonderful woman ever. But it's possible that she's the ugliest, worst woman in the world, but it's too dark for them to tell which is which, and they can say yes or no. What are they going to do? They can't forever wait to answer. Death will force the answer of no. They're, 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 another example is like they're a badly damaged ship with just enough resources to make it one last effort to find land. And they're passing what appears to be a port, but it could be a, an illusion. They could go in and find a port and be saved, or they could go in and find an illusion and have no more resources to survive and, and, and to be dashed to death on the cliffs. Or... They could pass by the port and drift out to sea and die. The wager is not a piece of evidence or an argument. It's that wedding proposal. It's that call to port to the weary soul. It, it's, it's not a call to belief, but to faith, to trust. It's not an argument for the intellect, but a plea to the will. Ironically, so much of the new atheist reactions against the wager are built on the same kind of misunderstandings and confusion of cognitive categories and volitional categories. So, coming back to Boghossian, we have a clear example of this. A few years ago, on an episode of Unbelievable, Boghossian entered into a discussion with Christian philosopher Timothy McGrew, and by all accounts, uh, Boghossian was completely out of his depth. I mean, I, I've had countless, countless atheists tell me that Boghossian is just a terrible representation of their position and thought that he was completely outwitted by, by McGrew. Uh, as, uh, uh, well, I have to admit, uh, I, I think that that's right. But what interests me for this episode is that Boghossian claimed that his definition of faith as being a virtue of pretending to know what you don't know or believing in God without evidence was the majority view held by billions, yes, with a B, billions of Christians. He says that McGrew represented a few dozen people of McGrew's academic inner circle. Well, to resolve the issue, or to start to resolve it anyway, since no single survey could resolve it completely, Boghossian said that Unbelievable should put up a survey of its listeners to have them vote on their definition and that he would be interested in the results. Ironically, it was McGrew, the theist, who had to step in and make the survey massively more accurate and scientific by separating out the Christians from the non-Christians and how they would define faith. 
This keeps the, the, the survey about what Christians themselves mean by the term and then also shows how atheists understand Christians to mean by the term. The results? Nine out of 10 Christians disagree with Bogosian's redefinition of faith, while about 75% of atheists agreed with him. Now, to be fair, this could be simply due to the kind of people who listen to The Unbelievable Show. Maybe they're more educated and trained than your average pew sitter, it's possible. But this definitively shows that Bogosian's claim that this is the majority view Again, despite the Oxford English Dictionary and nearly every theologian down through the centuries disagreeing with him, is just hopelessly flawed. Not to mention that we really should try to engage other views with their concepts as they mean them, or else we're just engaging in strawmanning them. I doubt Bogosian and, and the atheists would like it very much if we went around redefining their terms to mean whatever we Christians wanted them to mean, and then telling them that, that, that they had to mean it that way, that our definition is the only meaning of the term, the sine qua non of the concept that they have to use and that they have to mean. This is why I'm fine saying that one of the uses of atheism is a lack of belief, at that point, I don't care if you use it that way. I'm just going to show that that's a conceptually confused definition. That if you use it that way, that's fine, but it's going to lead to all kinds of problems for you down the road. But you can use it that way. I'm not going to force another definition off you if that's how you want to use the term. So the question remains, do you think Bogosian accepted this evidence that his definition is not how Christians use the term? Or do you think he continued to have faith as in his definition uh, as being a belief without evidence or believing in God uh, based on no evidence or that it's a virtue to believe without evidence? Well, you guessed it. He's continued to go on his own idiosyncratic redefinition of faith. So, what can we make of the atheistic memes and rhetoric about belief and faith and evidence? Well, let's just say that I lack a belief that they are of any value whatsoever, and I just have the observation and evidential conclusions that they are fitful flights of fancy with no merit to their name. Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Free Thinker Podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to contact me at freethinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog at freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or come on by the Freethinker group page on Facebook. Join me again next time as we go through some hopefully interesting content uh, with more to come. Good night and God bless.